This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The present state in which we live is not one at which we have arrived by dumb accident. Rather, it is the magnificent result of an unbroken chain of past events, each link sacred and unique. This is History Boulevard with John Oakley. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. All the humanity. The assault on the Branch Davidian Cup. We choose to go to the moon. Watch I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Martin Luther King has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. I got blood. I got dynamite. I got a whole lot of fight. I can't believe what's happening here. Mark Stilper was a longtime friend of Johnny Cash, a music historian and author, whose next book, by the way, is going to be The Legends of Johnny Cash, How Man, Music, and Myth Created the Man in Black. So we brought Mark Stilper back with us here on The Oakley Show at 640 Toronto. Mark, tell me first off, uh, because I never did get it, I guess, on Friday, I lost, uh, how'd you come to know Johnny Cash and at what point in his career? Uh, well, we met uh, about, about 20 years before he died uh, on the road. And we just 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 hit it off. He he kind of figured out that if he needed to ask a question about himself, and he often said, "I've forgotten more about me than you probably really already know about me." Hmm. And so uh, it started that way. And you know, when when he needed a reference and a resource, uh, it was it was easy to call me, and I was thrilled to uh, stop what I was doing and, and help him. And we worked on a number of projects together, uh, liner notes for some of his albums, uh, outlines of his uh, autobiography. And uh, it, 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 was a, it was a magical time. The man was, was a very, very good man. I don't know that, that the caricatures and the histories really tell us that much but he was he was generous. He was funny. He was gentle, uh, exceedingly kind. He was a very polite man, and uh, brilliant. He was a he was a scholar. He was a biblical scholar. He was an ancient Roman history scholar. Uh, he was an ordained minister. Uh, he was a multi multifaceted man, and uh, it was just it was just a a privilege. To, to be in his presence. It really was, without exaggerating. Well, Mark, you would have seen him then about 20 years prior to his death, which was 2003, uh, when, you know, he was going through, I guess, uh, a little turmoil in his career. That was around the time that Columbia did drop him. They figured, you know, country music uh, has had its day. But you also saw the revival then, uh, especially with Rick Rubin at American Recordings. Would you say uh, that sort of spanned that period where you got to know Johnny? Yes, uh, 1983 was is about the time that he really started having some health problems. 1986 was the year that Columbia dropped him, and probably professionally, that was a very low point for him. It, it really knocked the breath out of him. It uh, 
it was a it was a shock to so many people. Um, you know, as as the as the story went, uh, he built the building uh, down on Music Row in Nashville uh, in 1969. He was the number one record seller in the world. Uh, if your name was McCartney or Lennon or Joplin or Jagger, you were looking up at the sales that Johnny Cash was putting in, uh, putting up on the charts in 1969. It was, uh, it was just stunning how this, this man who was, a, he was a sharecropper son. He was born dirt poor in the Great Depression, and he was the biggest selling recording artist in the world in 1969. By 1986, Columbia was saying, well, what have you done for me lately? Hmm. And his sales, as, as things happen, what goes up does come down. Uh, but most, most legends are treated a little better than he was uh, in 1986. And you know, we look back now and we're kind of pleased that, that it all happened the way that it did because it turned, the, turned the, the page and allowed him to do things that he had not been doing before. But nevertheless, in 1986, it was a difficult time, John. It really was. And yet, you know, uh, as you cite, uh, his career had a renaissance uh, guided by Rick Rubin to a large extent, who's, you know, one of the preeminent uh, producers in different genres of music. He's up there with the Quincy Jones and uh, the Phil Spectors and people of that and George Martin, even with the Beatles. So Rick Rubin decided to take a chance on cash or he said uh, cash still has a lot to offer and it was proven to be prophetic. But it's interesting when you talk about, you know, how he was discarded by Nashville uh, when Unchained won a Grammy for Best Country Music Album in 1998. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar that uh, Johnny Cash, they took out a full page ad in Billboard magazine, Cash giving the mid middle finger to, uh, and this is basically the tagline, American Recordings <laughs> and Johnny Cash would like to acknowledge the Nashville Music Establishment and Country Radio for your support. And he's giving them the middle finger. <laughs> so I guess he had the last laugh, didn't he? Well, it, it wasn't his idea. It was Rick Rubin's idea. Uh, when Rick came to him and said, what do you think of this? He laughed. I'm not sure that he laughed uproariously. He was probably a little sheepish about it. I know June was. June was, was, was shocked. And, and I think she probably took to her bed after she saw that ad. Uh, but it was, it was a, it was a hysterical ad and it was, it was on point. Uh, was a he won a Grammy for every album that he released with uh, with Rick, uh, starting in uh, 1994 with American Recordings. Uh, every 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 album he did just seemed to get better and better uh, as he uh, as he taught us lessons. He taught us lessons about life and love and being human, and in the end, in in how to say goodbye. Yeah. Yeah, uh, with hurt, uh, nine inch nails. By the way, you know, uh, it's interesting that you mentioned that the humanity, the breadth of humanity that he encompassed in his music and the messaging. Uh, but I wanted to take it back to, you know, I was watching just the other day, uh, a YouTube video and I, I guess it was 1990, Nassau Coliseum, Long Island, the highwaymen. And I, I'm thinking to myself, how could Columbia think that this guy had exhausted, you know, the best he had on offer because he's there with Christofferson, Willie and Wayland. And that's as good a concert as you're going to see in country music 
ever. This is like, you know, the, uh, the, what do you call it there? Uh, the pantheon, uh, of, uh, musical talents and Johnny Cash, you know, uh, was one of the luminaries. I thought to myself, geez, you know, uh, yeah, somebody really, uh, pulled the trigger too early. And that was against the people at, uh, Columbia Records. You mentioned June Carter. Uh, he was obviously, she wrote Ring of Fire, uh, and this was almost a biographical, uh, what admission that uh, she had fallen for Johnny Cash, but it wasn't always that way. There's an interesting story going around. Uh, I have it on good authority that he actually proposed to her at uh, an arena in London, Ontario here, a hockey rink he was playing. Uh, <laughs> confirm or deny. What do you know of that story? Uh, that is that is a confirm, John. He actually had been in Toronto uh, the day before, and he had done a TV special for CBC, and it was a, a rousing success. He had never, in 1968, this when this was 1968, February, he had never done an entire TV show on his own before. And he was terrified. He was wary. He was, uh, he, he was just scared to death to, to have to handle an entire TV show by himself. There, uh, and a Canadian producer named Stan Jacobson, who had done Wayne and Schuster and, and, uh, Music Hop and a number of Canadian programs, uh, was a huge fan of Johnny Cash. And when CBC needed to do a special, uh, they went to him because he was their boy wonder producer. And he said, I know just the person that I want to do for this. And the special turned out amazingly well he did it at the o'keefe center i think that's um meridian hall now down there on front street in in, in toronto <laughs> yep you're and, very familiar yep and it was uh it was it had not yet been uh, uh released it was not yet on the air but it was so successful that that night um john and stan and saul holliff who was johnny cash's manager through the 60s and he was from london ontario they got together and john and june said we would like to get married here in toronto in the morning well it wasn't quite that easy as you know there there are laws and tests and and oaths you must swear to to get married and it didn't work out but they left toronto and uh, I guess, what is it, about 200 kilometers down to London? Yeah. And uh, that night, the next night, they were on stage and uh, he made it official. He, he said, I would, I would like to, you to marry me. And you know, it, it may not have been as spontaneous as, as the, uh, the fairy tale would have it, but it was magical nevertheless. It was, it was amazing. Uh, and she said yes. And one week later, they went to Kentucky, uh, just north of their home in Nashville, and they were married. But it all got its genesis uh, right there in Ontario. 
Fascinating accounts. Mark, I still want to hang on to you here because uh, there are more where this came from, needless to say. A longtime friend of Johnny Cash, Mark Stilper, is on the line with us, a music historian, author, whose next book is going to be The Legends of Johnny Cash, How Man, Music, and Myth Created the Man in Black. Is it The Legends of Johnny Cash? Because it implies that there were several phases, uh, and certainly that would be apropos because uh, that was the last installment, you know, as uh, he was covering Nine Inch Nails there, and what he was doing was basically... Uh, it was the renaissance of his career with Rick Rubin. We were mentioning that the noted producer who uh, started uh, kickstarted the last chapter of his career. You know, Mark, I want to get back to this June Carter thing in the marriage because uh, Johnny Cash at the time was already married. He had four kids, so he had to wait for the divorce before they could actually consummate that thing, didn't they? Oh, absolutely. He they had to uh, they had to wait before they remarried. Uh, and that happened very quickly. In fact, only two days after their divorce, his first wife remarried. And that kind of just opened the, opened the, the, the road up a little bit there. And it, that was in January of 1968. And then by, by March 1st, uh, they, John, Johnny Cash and June Carter were, uh, were the official first family of country music. He may not have been on top of the world yet, but he was climbing very, very quickly, and he got there very shortly after that. Would you say that June uh, not only maybe uh, took his career in a slightly different direction, softened his outlaw image, maybe even saved him in the end, uh, rescued him from what looked like imminent death, you know, the way he was delving into alcohol and uh, the drugs and all the rest of that? Well, June gave him a purpose. She gave him... Uh, a, 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 a landmark to to look towards. He he would frequently say, you know, I if anybody saved me, God saved me, and I saved me. But June gave me a reason to save me. Well, yeah, and uh, his brushes with death. There's a story uh, going back to the mid '60s where uh, at the time you mentioned Saul Holliff, who was his manager discovered him near death from a drug overdose after a performance here in Toronto. Uh, what were the circumstances there? It, it was. It was, a, uh, it was a show in Toronto, which, by the way, John, Toronto and, and generally Ontario, Johnny Cash played more dates in Toronto than any other city in his lifetime. Toronto was number one. Most of that was because of Saul and the connection. Uh, but John really, really enjoyed going to Toronto. I know he, he played Massey Hall a number of times. He did the uh, Canadian National Ex Exhibition. Uh, gosh, I, I can't even count how many times. I know it was more than six. Um, but yes, after a show in Toronto, it was 1966. It was not one of his... Uh, stronger times and uh, the uh, the the band found him unconscious and uh, there was some question as to whether he was going to live actually and uh, Saul Saul was ex uh, extremely upset by this as you might gather uh, and he said in fact he said to Luther Perkins the uh, the guitar player uh, for for the Tennessee three Johnny's band he said, is, 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 he, is he dead? Hmm. And uh, Luther, who was known for a rather sardonic wit, he said, well, um, if, if he wakes up, he's not dead. But <laughs> if he doesn't wake up, 
than he is. <laughs> okay. Almost sounds like the coroner uh, who was on scene. <laughs> But uh, obviously, uh, he came through that all. And uh, he, he you know. came through that. They they kind of hid him as they came back across the border and into Rochester, where he had a show that night. Uh, they were afraid that the uh, immigration authorities were going to uh, have a problem. But that ended up not happening. And uh, as Saul put it, the man got up off of his deathbed and went out and put on the best show of the tour that night. That's that's what he did. People yeah. called it the luck of cash, L-O-C. Uh, that was shorthand. You know, oh, it was L-O-C again, L-O-C. Uh, and he, he made his own luck. He, he just, he, he defied expectations. He defied death. Uh, he, he just defied convention. And I think that was why he, he was around for a, for a 50 year career. It's just amazing. Yeah. How do you explain, uh, you know, that last chapter? I mean, OK, Rick Rubin gets some of the credit for helping his uh, renaissance, but, you know, uh, collaborating with uh, a lot of the bands and acts that were really, uh, you know, have been current in the last 20 years or so. Uh, the millennials and the hipsters embraced him as well. It wasn't, you know, just traditionalists, uh, you know, the purists from country music or anything like that. But he had crossed over. And uh, where was the appeal to be found there? I, I think the appeal was that he was he was timeless, John, and he spoke to eternal themes. Um, he he wasn't a fad. Um, he when 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 Rick booked him into some of these little clubs that he would play, and you know a new uh, a hip New York City club or, or somewhere you know in Atlanta or the House of Blues or or these various. Uh, you know, hipster places, uh, John was at first just terrified. He said, what if they don't know me? What if they don't know my songs? How, how am I going to introduce myself to them? And he just went out. He would do the first half of his show with the new songs, the songs that he was doing with Rick. And then the second half of the show, he would, uh, he would get up there and he would bring his band up. And he would go into I Walk the Line and Ring of Fire and Sunday Morning Coming Down and these these classics. Um, he did that out in the Viper Room, which Johnny Depp owned out in California at one time. Mm -hmm. And they mobbed the place. The kids were singing along to every one of his old songs. He was astonished. Of course, he was proud, but he was mostly astonished that, yeah, they, they remembered me. Maybe I still do have something to say here. Well, yeah, and the movie Walk the Line, Joaquin Phoenix did such a great job with that. Uh, that obviously lent currency to Johnny Cash's legacy, did it not? Oh, uh, abs absolutely it did. I mean, that, you know, when, when we talk about whether the word legend is singular or plural, there are so many legends. Um, and... You know, walk the line only went into a few of them. Uh, the 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 life that he lived was was so epic. It was uh, it was monumental. Uh, he had he had calamitous falls, and he had the most triumphant victories. He is in every Hall of Fame you can possibly think of. Rock and roll, country music, songwriters, rockabilly. He's, he's even an honorary member of the Canadian Hall of Fame. 
Uh, and of course, you know, he was a, he was a Southern country, Southern U.S. country boy. Uh, but, you know, he was, he's in the Texas Hall of Fame and he, he was not born in Texas either. Hmm. But, you know, everybody claimed him because he, again, he just spoke to everybody. He, he had so, so much to say and, and people, you know, people stopped listening for a while because it really wasn't cool to listen to Johnny Cash. You know, he was, he was, he was getting older and, you know, you're always looking for the, the latest, you know, latest fruit of the day or, you know, something new. But, you know, when they came back around, he really wasn't saying very much different. Maybe he was saying it a little differently, but he wasn't saying anything that he hadn't been saying for a long time. And, you know, he, he, he was had a great, great faith. Um, there, there's a, a new movie that's going to be released in a couple of months, uh, an entire movie based only on his faith-based journey in his life. Um, and that's just one part of the man's legend. You know, there, there were just so many, John. Absolutely. Uh, and he wore the scars honorably. I mean, when's your book coming out, by the way? Uh, well, you know, publishers aren't aren't liking print very much anymore. So it looks like it's going to be a little bit longer. But uh, hopefully, fingers crossed, it, it won't be too much longer. We'll look for it. We'll talk on that occasion. Mark, I wish we had more time, but great, great filling in the backstory and certainly uh, to uh, revisit the storied life of Johnny Cash with his longtime friend, Mark Stilper, music historian, author, whose next book will be The Legends of Johnny Cash, How Man, Music, and Myth Created the Man in Black. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Back in 1804, it actually happened. Aaron Burr shot to death Alexander Hamilton. I don't know if you've seen the musical Hamilton. It was a real hot ticket in New York. Then it came to Toronto as well. I think it was uh, aborted by the, the COVID pandemic. But nonetheless, a uh, pretty interesting theatrical uh, review insofar as, I don't know the depiction, uh, but they made Hamilton out to be this uh, progressive visionary, Aaron Burr, the bad guy. So let's find out exactly what led to this scenario, pistols at dawn on this date that ended up to be a fateful one in both instances, but certainly for Alexander Hamilton. John Sedwick has joined us on the line. John's the author of the book, War of Two, Alexander Hamilton, Aaron Burr, and the Duel That Stunned the Nation. John, good to have you on the Oakley Show in Toronto. Good afternoon. Well, isn't it nice to speak to you? It's also exciting to think that it stunned another nation, your very own. Uh, um, <laughs> the, uh, the idea is spreading, clearly. Well, yeah, but you see, the musical Hamilton sort of lent currency to the story. And I'm kind of curious, by the way, uh, did it do justice to the tale of Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton? Um, yes and no. I mean, yes, because it was electrifying and that it boosted Alexander Hamilton to his significance in a currency that he hadn't had in about 100 years. And Aaron Burr, you know, I think likewise, although, of course, he fared a little less well in the musical. It wasn't called um, Burr. It was called Hamilton. Sure. Uh, um, but, the, um, but the thing that is um, uh, 
you know, that, that I think about that when I think about that musical is that the musical portrayed him, Hamilton, as a sort of up from nothing uh, um, immigrant who was proud of his heritage and that he was a uh, rags to riches tale and that he uh, uh, and that's what he wanted to be known for. Not at all. He, he wanted to be known as an establishment figure and that he certainly didn't want to be recalled for his uh, um, youth in Nevis, this tiny island in the Caribbean, and he didn't want anybody to know that, in fact, he was from nothing. That was an embarrassment to him. And whenever he was at a dinner party, he always peacocked about and made it seem like he was virtual royalty and spoke down to people. He didn't speak. uh, um, Burr, by contrast, was the one who was a far more effective politician in that sense, that he talked to people in ways that they wanted to that that they wanted to hear, not Hamilton. And yet Hamilton rose to a a place of prominence as Secretary of the Treasury, and he sort of set up the monetary system in the U.S. The fledgling United States of America was only you know uh, about a dozen or so years old. But now, and Aaron Burr was a, a prolific politician in his own right. So give us a quick synopsis of their backgrounds. Yeah, I mean, well, you will, yeah, well, see, that's the thing that's so interesting is that, in some ways, to me anyway, Hamilton, as I say, came across as the, as the establishment figure, and Burr came across as somebody who was a bit of a renegade. Um, and the Burr, you know, was an extremely successful politician. He was the sitting vice president of the United States when he shot Alexander Hamilton the former Secretary of the Treasury. Now, that is a pretty remarkable turn of events, and it is happily not one that's been repeated in this country, and in few others, the major figures in the administration square off at each other and shoot to kill. But, you know, what the part always amazes me is what you do the night before a fateful duel that may end your life or end the life of your opponent. Do you sleep well? Do you even go to bed at an early hour in order to be fresh in the morning? Like, what do you do? Well, Aaron Burr slept like a baby and had to be woken up by his servant in the morning. Hamilton uh, um, was much edgier, and that he, there was a, an, an orphan boy was staying with them, and he cradled the, the, that, that uh, little boy in his arms after reciting with him the Lord's Prayer, and then went to bed and slept very fitfully, and then was up early in the morning. And you know, the thing that, that made me so interested in this is that the last letter that Hamilton sent, and he spent the evening before bed writing a a last round of correspondence, and he sent the last letter that he ever wrote to my ancestor, Theodore Sedgwick, who who had been the Speaker of the House uh, um, uh, um, of Representatives in Washington uh, um, in in 1800, and was a friend of Hamilton's politically, but also socially. Uh, that was quite a remarkable letter for him to receive. And, of course, by the time he got it, Hamilton was dead. And that in the letter, it was, it, he, Hamilton gave the clearest account as to why he wanted to fight Burr and potentially fight him to the death. Although he never actually mentioned in that letter Burr specifically, it was clear what was on his mind. And there were two things in particular. One was that he feared that the empire would be dismembered. And what he was referring to there 
was that Burr had been part of what was known as the Northern Conspiracy. As the Federalists lost power in Washington because Jefferson rose up to defeat them, they wanted to put together the six New England states plus New York and make a separate country, possibly with Burr as the president. It was like the first secession, long before the the South seceded in the Civil War. It obviously didn't happen, but Hamilton had clearly gotten wind of it and was afraid that Burr would try and detach a portion of the country from the rest of the country. And, of course, he did ultimately do that after he shot Burr, that he engaged in this enormous conspiracy to take... The, um, the Louisiana Purchase of Jefferson, it was a third of the country, and make it into his own private empire. So Hamilton was not wrong about that. And the other thing that he said was that he feared that the country would suffer from too much democracy. Hmm. And that's an odd thing to say, obviously. But what did he mean by it? What he meant, I think, was that Burr, unlike other politicians, had gone about, when he was elected assemblyman in New York City, he did it by an extremely unorthodox method. And that was he went house to house and engaged each individual voter personally, rather than letting surrogates speak for him. And then he would, you know, write letters to the newspapers and just generally stay above the fray. That's the way all politicians did it until Burr came along. What Hamilton was afraid of was that he was then going to be able to say different things to different people and, and be extremely opportunistic and that, and that people would have no way to hold him to account because nobody knew really what he stood for. And that, to him, was an excess of democracy. And in this sense, um, Hamilton was also right, because Burr was a, an extraordinary opportunist, a man of no fixed principles whatsoever. And this, to Hamilton, was infuriating. He was like silly putty. You just could not squish him into shape. And so that's, that, that's what he wanted to um uh, th- that's what he wanted to, uh, I think, in, in, in fighting this duel, there are many possible purposes and many people have had different accounts. But I think that that was motivating for him. I think that when I called this book War of Two, I called it that because this was a war that Hamilton was waging against Burr. And mm. it, was that, um, it was the kind of war that was decisive and total. Great antagonism between the two of them, uh, as you say, and it all led to this fateful morning on this date in 1804, pistols drawn at dawn. And it was on a dueling ground in Weehawken, New Jersey, right across the river from Manhattan. Uh, They actually had a dueling ground there back in the day, and this is the way they sort of settled accounts. Yeah, how handy. Uh, um, (laughs) Where do you go to duel, I have to say, up in Toronto? (laughs) I'm curious. Uh, uh, well, here we go to New Jersey. <laughs> it's funny. Right. I mean, it, then as now, that, you know, I mean, it's like the Sopranos. They're in New Jersey. They're not in Manhattan. Uh, right. uh, same deal then. You could do things in New Jersey that you couldn't do in Manhattan or in the state of New York. I mean, it's not that they were legal there. They weren't. But the people kind of looked the other way. Mm. And, and so there was a dueling ground there. And, and sure enough, that's where they went. It was right across from 42nd Street. You could right. take a boat over, and, and that Hamilton arrived first, and then Burr. And, you know, the seconds bring the pistols, and they pace out the distance. And what's fascinating to me is that 
it still was illegal, even though it was winked at. And one of the consequences of that was that the second, and, any, and there was a physician there in attendance, they didn't actually watch the duel happen because they didn't want to be implicated in the duel and then be held up, uh, arrested for being complicit in a murder, which is mm. what they would have been. So yeah. they bo- everybody there, except for the two principals, looked away. Well, that yeah. means that nobody saw what actually happened. Well, uh, we know that Hamilton Burr, ends up dead. Yeah, and, and Burr survives, and uh, this is where, you know, over 200 years later, you get a musical. Uh, listen, John, it's a fascinating account. Uh, people can delve into it a little more deeply. Uh, the Duel That Stunned the Nation is the book, The War of Two, Alexander Hamilton, Aaron Burr, and The Duel That Stunned the Nation. John Sedgwick, I, I really appreciate it. It was on this day. We always like to uh, take a romp down History Boulevard, and uh, you have helped us in that regard. Thanks so much. The notorious leader of the Quebec Hells Angels, Maurice Mom Boucher, actually passed in prison from throat cancer at the age of 69. It's a fascinating story insofar as, well, just the criminal element and how somebody rises from you know, humble beginnings, if you will, on the Gaspé Peninsula in the province of Quebec, and uh, then they become a big magilla within organized crime. No one knows that better than our guest James Dubro, freelance crime journalist as well as author of numerous books, including mob rule james has joined us here on the oakley show at 640 toronto james always a pleasure to talk good afternoon good afternoon you, john how are you doing i'm all right i mean uh the idea that mom boucher died in prison i mean he was doing life was he not for murder yeah he was doing 25 years for which he was up for parole for for two murders and then he was doing another 10 for another murder so it's, Life isn't really life anyway, but in this case it was, as it was for John Gotti. But you know, for a fearsome, respected, formerly respected organized crime leader to die in jail is is almost a blessing as opposed to being murdered in the streets as he could easily have been done in the 90s or early 2000s. Well, yeah, when he was uh, in charge of the, I guess, it was an offshoot of the Hells Angels, the Nomads, uh, the group that, did he not found this group in Quebec? I mean, it was sort of an elite group of, uh, of bikers within the Hells Angels umbrella? Yeah, he uh, he was the president of the Hells Angels uh, of Montreal, and he, he founded the Nomads, which is a super structured group to really control all the chapters in Canada and put it under his under his stamp, uh, as it were. He was kind of a dictatorial Hells Angels boss. But he did it primarily for the drug trade to, to corner the market on cocaine uh, from, from all the other biker gangs and, indeed, from other organized crime gangs. He, he went after the mafia and the street gangs as well. So he did it for that reason, but then there was a personal rivalry between him and Gazetta, the leader of the rock machine. So... Um, that led to a huge biker war and a lot of bloodshed. And Mom Boucher was responsible for so many outrageous murders between 1990 and 2002. Uh, I mean, a boy, 12 years old, killed in the street by a bomb. Uh, The shooting of Michel Auger, a respected organized crime journalist and friend of mine. That was a travesty. And, And the prison guards that were killed, not in prison, but on the streets, of Montreal to send a lesson that Mom Boucher controlled the justice system, not not the uh, not the government. Well, that was the rap that ended uh, landed him in jail for the life, right? 
That's right. Yeah, the, the, he, he was convicted for killing the, the, the two prison guards. Basically, one of the, and of course, one of the people he had organized those hits, he was testing him for a higher position, but he later turned on Montboucher. So much happens in organized crime. You know, I've been studying organized crime and researching it for books and documentaries for almost 50 years now. It's a recurring story that people get used, abused, and then they turned on their on their bosses. That's what happened to Gotti with, um, you know, uh, what's his name? Sammy Gravano. Sammy Gravano, yeah. How could I forget Sammy the Bull? Uh, yes, Gravano, and it happened to a whole, almost every major organized crime killer. They either get turned on and get murdered, as Gotti turned on his previous boss and had him killed, uh, or they get turned on and end up in jail for, for life, you know, or for the rest of their life. But James, it's usually, isn't it usually to save their own skin because they know they're going yeah. up the river and, and so they, they do it. They turn what is called state's well, evidence, I guess. It's to turn, save their own skin, but also because they feel they're in danger from the boss. I know in the case of the Musitano uh, Murdoch thing, Murdoch felt that uh, they might turn on him or they feel betrayed by the boss or used by the boss or trying to save their own skin. Yes, whether it's jail or their life. Because once you do murders for anyone, never mind organized crime, you see it in Macbeth, uh, by Shakespeare, it goes way back. Once you do murders for anyone, you're subject to being eliminated because you're the witness, you see, because mm-hmm. uh, you were the killer. And that, that's throughout history, that's been the case. And certainly in organized crime, we see that again and again. Frequently, the hitmen are very expendable. But the thing about Mom Boucher is that he rose from nothing, as you say, to become one of the most feared and respected organized crime leaders, not only in Quebec, but across Canada, particularly in, in, in Montreal. And yet, because of the things he did, such as the hubris in, in trying to go after the justice system, to try to, you know, just basically destabilize society, uh, that hubris led to his losing respect uh, among other gangsters, particularly in the mafia and the street gangs, and even in the biker world. So much so that when finally he went to jail, they actually kicked him out of the Hells Angels. Hmm. Again, James Dubrow is with us, freelance crime journalist, author of numerous books, including Mob Rule, uh, this recounting the death and the life of uh, Maurice Mom Boucher, former Quebec Hells Angels leader, died of cancer throat cancer in jail uh i guess it was yesterday at 69 the name mom uh that was affixed to him if memory serves because he was so fastidious he wanted to run everything he was kind of a micromanager wasn't he yeah mother boucher uh, you could call him yeah he was uh, uh, very meticulous he was a you know i i don't have many good things to say boucher he's better dead than alive obviously uh to me and to most quebecers but he was a super super organizer and super at organizing structures, criminal structures. Uh, he certainly took the Hells Angels from being a sort of middling power in Quebec and Canada and to, to right to the top, and it's still right at the top. The Hells Angels control pretty much organized crime in Canada. Mafia is very weak right now. Uh, and then the street gangs. So he, he had that amazing ability, and of course he had a certain charm, and he enjoyed the publicity. He enjoyed being a celebrity in Quebec. And for some people, he was a folk hero, like Johnny Papelia was in Hamilton, right? Mm. But, and Don Gotti was in New York. But he was no folk hero. He was a vicious, psychopathic criminal killer and deserves 
everything that's happened to him from the 20 years in jail to his death. Uh, you know, James, you were alluding earlier to a colleague of yours. Uh, was it Felix Auger? He was the criminal. He, he was Michelle, a reporter. Yeah. Michel, Michel. He, he was shot in the back. Yeah, in nine times, but he survived, didn't he? He, he survived. It was a miraculous, actually, that he was shot six times, actually, but he, he wasn't, it didn't hit any vital organs. It was in the parking lot of his newspaper, Le Journal de Montreal. Yeah. And he had been writing a series uh, on the bikers. And he'd been doing that all his life. This was. You know, around 2000, I think it was 2001. I, I had worked with Michelle as a close collaborator and confidant for Connections in the 70s. He was one of our researchers when we went out to Vancouver to do the Vancouver Connections to the Mafia and Organized Crime. He was our point man in Quebec during the 70s. So we had worked very closely together. He was a friend. And in fact, because he was only wounded. I mean, he was in the hospital for a week. But I had dinner with him two weeks after he got out of the hospital, right on the streets of Montreal. He wasn't going to show them, but he was afraid. He, he went right back on the streets. We had a dinner in an outside Portuguese restaurant near the gay village, and he was fearless, Michel. Hmm. He passed away of natural causes, just like um, our friend Boucher did. Uh, and it's unusual for these serious crime leaders in Canada. And I would say Boucher was one of the most serious, feared powerful ones we've ever had in this country. It's unusual from the die of natural causes. Finally, though, James, uh, who or what fills the vacuum or void? Well, there's no vacuum in this case because he's been in jail for 20 years. The Hells Angel functions very well without him. Much uh, low, more low-keyed leadership. It's back to the old chapters running things. There isn't a super-dominant uh, Putin-like dictator running things. Uh, and there's an alliance between the street gangs and the, and the Hells Angels, which controls most of the bikers in Canada, and the Mafia in, in Montreal and in the rest of Canada. They work together on a whole bunch of things, and there are a lot of other organized crime groups too. And mostly the, the prize these days, as opposed to just cocaine, is also fentanyl, and Asian crime is very much involved in that. I wrote a book on Asian crime, and they're very big in that, and money laundering, of course which we just saw in British Columbia, billions of dollars laundered. Amazing. Yeah. You know, we're going to have to talk about this uh, down the road uh, sooner rather than later. I appreciate your time this afternoon, though, on the occasion of, and uh, good riddance, I guess, with... Good riddance, yes. Yeah, Mom Boucher dying in prison. I friends in Quebec who said, that's great, you know, no, no, nothing to feel sorry about. Gotcha. James, appreciate your time. Take care. In 1881, Billy the Kid bought the farm. He was shot to death, as the legend has it, by Pat Garrett, the sheriff who had hunted him down for three whole months. Let's get the details on this and who exactly Billy the Kid was. Joining us on the line from uh, Idaho Springs, Colorado today, from Marion's of the Rockies Restaurant, is Michael Grauer. He's a historian, curator of cowboy collections and Western art at the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum in Oklahoma City. Michael, good to have you here in Toronto on the Oakley Show. As always, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Much obliged for having me on again. So, Michael, let's start with uh, Billy the Kid, because here I've got it that uh, Sheriff Pat Gary shoots Henry McCarty. How do you get the name Billy the Kid, then? Well, it's an alias that uh, really starts out as being applied to him, and then, of course, he embraces it because uh, he started to believe his own press, as many of the criminals do, is they, they love the press and they love the attention, and especially because uh, the media got a hold of uh, some of the stories and that 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 
most of which were were not true and exaggerated his uh, his prowess let's call it um and so he he certainly embraced that alias but no that's that that certainly wasn't his name um so it's a a, a pretty typical story in the in the wild west everything there is exaggerated yeah, well, he was the most wanted man in the Wild West. Uh, he was just a kid, basically. What was he, 18 when he actually got shot? Uh, yeah, he was, cl- yeah, something like that, something close to 20. Um, but yeah, j- just a kid. Um, and, uh, got into, got into, involved in some historical events in Lincoln County, New Mexico, and Silver City, New Mexico, and not in Arizona. And of course, that was, uh, a fairly lawless frontier in the late 1870s and early 1880s when, uh, when Pat Garrett finally tracked him down. Well, why did Pat Garrett track him down? What's the story behind that? Well, you know, uh, when, uh, when, uh, when crime gets off the rails, uh, and that might be a pertinent story even today, when crime goes off the rails, it starts to get the national attention of, uh, of the press, and then ultimately politicians get, in, get involved. And because uh, the Lincoln County War had great political ramifications for the New Mexico Territory, uh, eventually, the president of the United States gets involved and says, "You got to, you got to get this is a black mark on my record. You got to take care of this." Um, and so, eventually, uh, Garrett's hired, uh, deputized to uh, track him down and uh, and arrest him. Um, but everyone knew that that was a uh, a risky piece of work or a risky job of work. Um, and so, you know, uh, things went down as they went down. So, what was all of the strife in the New New Mexico or the Western Territories about at that time? It was mainly in, in the West. Everything's everything's a supply and demand story. So if there's a, a demand somewhere, somebody's going to try to capitalize on it. And it was really a beef cattle story, as most of the West was, or or some kind of resource. But in this case, it was uh, government contracts uh, to supply beef cattle and other supplies to the U.S. Army posts in New Mexico Territory and elsewhere. Because you could really make a lot of coin um, if you uh, if you were uh, involved in that and and nobody really liked competition and there were there were great monopolies and everything and so in lincoln county um there were a couple of different uh entities that were vying for those contracts and vying to supply that demand uh and billy the kid was on one side and then uh, pat garrett ultimately was on the other so basically a turf war and uh billy the kid uh, you know yeah was involved with one i guess uh rancher in particular and so was he like a a hitman on behalf of i mean how many people did he lay to waste uh and kill in his 18 or 20 years i think it's no more than three or four really i mean he gets credit for a lot of things i mean much like doc holiday you know you hear a gunfighters like doc holiday or or a white herb or jesse james and so on and nearly everyone are, are, are every one of those guys is credited with you know 20 30 kills and ultimately it, it's just a couple of guys and so with billy the kid it was the same thing everything was exaggerated and in his role with uh with the tunstall faction in uh in uh lincoln county he tried to he tried to be a cowboy and it was a terrible cowboy uh he was much better at stealing cattle than he was in herding cattle um, but he did work um, uh, not as a ranch hand, but as kind of a hanger-on uh, for the Tunstall Ranch outside Lincoln. Um, and when Tunstall was murdered uh, by the other faction, um, they're, 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 uh, Billy and uh, Bill, well, Bill, Henry McCarty and his his uh, compatriots, let's call them, uh, are, are uh, get, get some sort of commission, which made them sort of uh, official lawmen on some level. Or at least they believed they were, and so therefore they took it upon themselves to hunt down the killers. 
Um, and then, of course, it's back and forth. And who is a, an official lawman? And that's always a fine line in the American West, who was operating on which side of the law at any, any given time. And some of them operated on both sides uh, at certain points. Well, he was sentenced to uh, hang, I guess, or at least, uh, you know, he was in prison at the time. And uh, this is where he escaped, if legend, if I'm reading it right. And that's uh, where Pat Garrett was sent out to kind of hunt him down. Is that right? Right. Yeah, he was sentenced. He was sentenced to death. Um, somehow manages to escape from the jail there in Lincoln, which still stands. And and those of you who are old West buffs, you can still go to Lincoln, and it's, it's very much the same, um, somewhat modernized. Uh, um, you can still get six dollar gasoline there too, as you can anywhere else. <laughs> but but uh, but uh, Lincoln is still very much the same. The, the jailhouse is still there. You can see where where Billy. Uh, shot his way out and killed Bob Ollinger in the street and the other deputy in the street and, and uh, made his escape. And uh, so then he's a wanted fugitive, um, dead or alive, literally. And uh, eventually Pat Garrett took him out. How did Pat Garrett take him out? Uh, in, in the dark, uh, snuck into his room. He was staying at a, at a ranch house uh, in northeastern New Mexico. And and uh, uh some in- intelligence came to Pat that, that that this is where Billy was living. Probably he had an amorous relationship with a rancher's daughter there, and uh, Pat Garrett took advantage of that and uh, caught Billy unawares, barefoot. I'm I'm told in some or I've read in in some cases, um, and uh, uh, a, 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 a pistol shot or a revolver shot uh, took Billy out. It was that. Uh, again, with Michael Grauer, he's a historian when it comes to the Wild West. There was a story in Confirm or Deny that he also shot another gunslinger named Joe Grant, and the legend has it he got a hold of Grant's gun just prior to this gunfight and made sure that uh, he emptied the chamber, and therefore Grant was firing blanks or nothing, and Billy basically uh, had an open shot. That story appears to be true. Um, and, you know, Bill, any, most of these, these, these alleged gunslingers always looked for an advantage if they could. And in this case, he took advantage of uh, Grant's braggadocio uh, talking about how they really get, nobody could stand up to him. And uh, so, yeah, he made it made sure that that advantage was very clear, handing an, an empty revolver back to the gentleman. And, and uh, that was a pretty easy piece of business. On this date, uh, shot to death Billy the Kid in 1881 by Pat Garrett, the sheriff. The idea that, you know, he lives on in infamy here and uh, his legend is sort of, you know, grown for better or worse. Uh, some are saying, you know, in reality, and you're the expert on this, he was really just a sniveling coward. Well, I, that's what I think. I would think he was a kid with a bad attitude and a gun. Um, and that was it. And, of course, that makes everybody a giant in their own in their own minds. You know, they always said that Samuel Colt... Uh, uh, didn't make everyone equal, but the the Colt pistol certainly did, um, and so uh, I think that that gives a lot of gives a lot of bravery to a lot of people when you can hide behind hide behind a firearm. And Billy the Kid certainly did that. Um, but yeah, he was uh, he, he's just a, a a sniveling coward who uh, who uh, the the press picked up and made a, a hero. And in fact, he's heroicized in some circles even today. Hmm. Well, there you go. The more things change, the more they remain the same. You might even say that's sort of part of Americana, not to uh, be disparaging, but there's a lot of young people, you know, who are brave because they're carrying a firearm and uh, they yep. too are cowards. Yeah, but, you know, they're shooting up the innocents or otherwise, you know, settling things in their own uh, version of a gang war. Great historical perspective, Michael. I appreciate you joining us today from uh, Marion's of the Rockies restaurant in Idaho Springs, Colorado. Is it a good one? 
Oh, it's a fantastic one. You just had a great cup of coffee, and we got here too late for the cinnamon rolls, but my mom and dad used to eat breakfast here, so it's a great place to come and get some old-timey breakfast. <laughs> All right. Too late for the cinnamon rolls. Uh, that could almost be, yeah, just a metaphor for a dollar short and a day late or something like that, but too late for the cinnamon yes, roll. <laughs> Michael, yes, always sir. a pleasure. Well, much obliged, sir. Nick, I look forward to the next time. You got it for sure. Whenever there's any Western history that we need interpreted, we'll go to Michael Grauer. He's a curator of cowboy collections and Western art at the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum in Oklahoma City. Eighteen seventy—that actually uh, Canada grew exponentially here because Manitoba and the Northwest Territories were established from the vast territories that were known as Rupert's Land. Just a little history lesson. We, we like to go down History Boulevard on this program. Uh, another history or historical note, uh, Johnny Cash dumped by Columbia Records on this date in 1986. We'll talk about that in the next hour, uh, where I guess he was considered expendable, the man in black, after he had had so much success early in his career from the mid-50s forward. But he also enjoyed uh, a very fruitful career post being dumped in 86. And there's a story behind that that we're going to share with you as well. But right now, Bill Wazer has joined us on the line. He's one of Canada's leading experts on the history of Western and Northern Canada and the significance of this date in the expansion of this country where it said it's really transformed us from a modest country in the northeast corner of North America into an expansive nation stretching north and west across the entire continent. Bill, good to have you back in the Oakley Show. Good afternoon. Thanks for the invitation, John. So, uh, it was transformative. Uh, tell me then how it was that, uh, you know, well, first of all, Rupert's land uh, was pretty massive in scale and scope, and so uh, we sort of, you know, uh, took that under our wing, uh, as the new nation, the burgeoning nation, fledgling nation came into being in 1867. It was only three years later that we uh, incorporated Manitoba and Northwest Territory. Tell me uh, how the genesis of all of that, including Rupert's Land from the Hudson's Bay Company. Well, uh, as you said, Rupert's Land was um, controlled by the Hudson's Bay Company. Rupert's Land was all the land that drained into Hudson Bay. And what didn't drain in Hudson Bay was called the Northwestern Territory, and we got it all. So to put that in perspective for your listeners, that includes northern Ontario, northern Quebec. The boundaries of northern Ontario and Quebec weren't expanded until 1912. Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, Nunavut, Yukon, and the Northwest Territories. Canada grew seven times in size with this real estate transaction. What's happening is Hudson Bay Company... Uh, the fur trade is coming to an end in the Southern Prairie District. Hudson's Bay Company wants to sell its land claim in the region, so uh, it turns to Canada. Canada is interested in acquiring it because in 1867, not only is our country created, but the United States buys Alaska from the Russians. So you've got Alaska in the far northwest, and you've got the continental United States. And who's stuck in the middle? Rupert's Land. So it's a matter of who's going to control this territory. And the Canadians acquired this large piece of real estate in the belief that if they didn't, the U.S. would. And if the U.S. took it over, it'd be the end of Canada as we know it today. Hmm. But, Bill, it was interesting because uh, in the past we've talked about the American acquisition in 1867 of Alaska. It was like yep. two cents an acre. It was two cents an acre. I believe, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that Canada acquiring Rupert's land from the Hudson's Bay Company was an even better real estate deal. 
three hundred thousand pounds sterling. It was over. It was seven million dollars <laughs> for Alaska, three hundred thousand pounds sterling. Uh, but uh, HBC got more. The HBC got land in Western Canada. It 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 didn't leave Western Canada completely. Part of the deal is that it would get land in Western Canada, and that was spun off as part of the Hudson's Bay Company real estate uh, business. What's interesting about this transaction, though, John, is that it was done without consultation of anybody living in Western Canada. I wasn't there at the time, but anybody living in Western Canada was not consulted. Here I'm talking about the Indigenous people. And the Métis people at Red River were upset with this transaction before it went through, and they uh, they mounted a resistance. It's not that they didn't want to join Canada, that's the future province of Manitoba, they were resisting the takeover without consultation. And so that's why you have the creation of Manitoba in May of 1870. With regard to the First Nations people, they were not consulted as, as well. They're not at the negotiation table. But after this transaction goes through in 1870, Canada then has to enter into treaty agreements uh, with the First Nations of Western Canada. So it's a two-step process. Well, it was truly transformative. Uh, again, Bill Wazer is with us, and we're talking about this date, uh, 1870, where Canadian Confederation saw Rupert's land in the Northwestern Territory officially transferred to Canada from Hudson's Bay. Uh, the Hudson's Bay Company in the province of Manitoba and the Northwest Territories are established from these vast territories. But it was, as you say, uh, it was not only transformative geographically, but for the cultures, the indigenous peoples. I guess the fur trade, which was really the thing that propelled discovery or uh, mapping of this region and the incursion of Europeans, uh, that was what transformed things as well, uh, the facts on the ground. Tell me about that. I mean, you mentioned well, Métis. I mean, the Métis uh, really are, I guess, a uh, cross-pollination of cultures, are they not? That's right. They are, in fact, uh, Métis comes from Métissage, meaning the uh, the mixture of the First Nations and these newcomer peoples, uh, Europeans, or in the case of in the in the 1700s, Canadians from the uh, colony of Quebec. But um, what's interesting is that you have the emergence of a distinctive society in Western Canada. The merging of Métis First Nations and these a newcomer or white settler people, and uh, you've got the emergence of a different identity. In fact, uh, in Western Canada up until the 19th century, uh, they embraced this diversity. It's not until after 1870, the coming of Canada and settlers from Ontario and Quebec into this region, that people uh, from that point forward, the emphasis is on a white. British civilization in Western Canada, and they turn their back on this very different past, but yet important past in Western Canada. But it also transformed the uh, indigenous culture, did it not? I mean, uh, they became heavily invested in being part of a fur trade. Uh, uh, yes, they did. Uh, uh, Métis people in particular, and First Nations people. But the fur trade was only part of First Nations life. They, they hunted the bison, they had other interests. What happens in 1870 after this transfer is that the fur trade doesn't end. Everybody thinks that the fur trade is over. The Hudson Bay Company sells its interests in the region. No, the fur trade moves north because many of the fur-bearing animals uh, are wiped out or heavily, heavily trapped in southern parts of present-day Western Canada. So the fur trade still continues to exist. What's interesting after 1870 is that the uh, First Nations people of Western Canada, where they had a relationship with the Hudson's Bay Company, now have to embark on a new relationship with this 
place called Canada. And Canada has a choice in the 1870s. It, it, it can either deal with First Nations or fight First Nations. And to put this problem into perspective, this challenge, in 1870, the United States spent more money fighting First Nations in the United States than the entire Canadian budget for 1870. Hmm. So instead of going that route of, of, of fighting First Nations, we entered into treaty uh, agreements with them. Yes, there were differences. Yes, there are misunderstandings, some misunderstandings about that those treaty agreements, but Canada chose that course instead of what the United States did. And shortly thereafter, uh, we saw John A. Macdonald and other principals, primarily out of Montreal, building a transcontinental railway. That's right. And, uh, you know, we acquire this territory in 1870, but Macdonald and others are afraid uh, we can't hold on to it unless we have a dependable transportation system. Uh, you know, Canada uh, often said that Canada was a mere paper thing on paper in 1867. We have to find a way of binding the country together from east to west. And the, the Canadian Pacific Railway was part of that, uh, that economic activity. But we make British Columbia promise in 1871 when it enters Confederation as a province, so it, it completes the transcontinental nation from coast to coast, from east to west. But in 1871, we promised British Columbia that we'll build a transcontinental railway, railway within 10 years. We don't do it. We fail in that, that regard, but we do build that railway in the 1880s. But it's a significant undertaking. You know what uh, was surprising to me? I'd not known this, but uh, prior to, uh, let's say, the Hudson's Bay Company being formed and uh, Rupert's Land, I guess, being yep. ceded over to the original governor of the Hudson's Bay Company, this was Prince Rupert. That's uh, right. Could have been uh, French because the people who were really trying to petition for this were French explorers, but they were turned down well, by France. It, it's, you know, the French and English are, are fighting in Europe. They're also battling in North America. And uh, the uh, the French in, in the St. Lawrence Valley versus the English Hudson Bay, they're competing for control of Western Canada. And after Quebec is, is with the conquest of Quebec in the 1750s, uh, the fall of uh, Quebec in 1759, uh, the French are temporarily sidelined. But what happens after that, you've got the a number of British merchants moving into Montreal, particularly Scottish British merchants, and they revive the French fur trade. And so there's this uh, very cutthroat competition between the Montreal-based fur trade called the Northwest Company and the Hudson Bay Company played out in Western Canada. And indigenous people in Western Canada are, are very resilient, very resourceful, and they know how to play off one company after another company. Uh, they, they, it's, it's, it's a very dynamic, constantly involving region in terms of those relationships. Well, a fascinating account uh, around it's, the time. It's, of a, it's a quick dance through it, John, but there's yeah. a lot of history there. But the important thing, as you said at the top, is that this is when Canada expands from coast to coast to coast. It's a remarkable real estate transaction for a country that's only three years old. Absolutely. Totally transformative in so many different ways. Bill, I appreciate your uh, giving us an update, as usual, Thank when you, it comes John. to matters of history. Yep, we'll talk oh. again down the road. Uh, that's a deal. Okay, take care. Have a fine weekend. And you, Bill Wazer, Canada's leading expert on the history of Western and Northern Canada. 
you watch European politics over the last century or so, uh, it seems like it's a tug of war between fascists and communists. And back in the 20s, in Italy anyway, uh, the fascists, the black shirts, the fascisti, won the day with Benito Mussolini, but uh, didn't live long, at least in relative terms. On this date, 1943, Benito Mussolini falls from power. So let's just find out uh, what happened there uh, exactly and how he came to power. Joining us on the line, one who knows full well, Ruth Ben-Gat, is a professor of history and Italian studies at New York University, author of the book Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present, as well as Lucid, her Substack newsletter about democracy and autocracy. Ruth Ben-Gat, good to have you on the Oakley Show in Toronto. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. So tell me a little bit about uh, Benito Mussolini, because his fall from power uh, happened on this date in 43. How did he come to power initially? Yeah, Mussolini gets overshadowed by Hitler for partly good reasons, but he was the one who wrote the the playbook about uh, modern autocracy. And he came to power at lightning speed. He founded fascism in 1919, and in 1922 he was already... Uh, invited to be prime minister, and three years later, he declared dictatorship. So he's the first one who um, got to power in a limited democracy and then eroded it and then uh, made, you know, uh, then decided democracy was not for him and declared a dictatorship that lasted for decades. Yeah, uh, but you know, I mean, okay, uh, his own personal, uh, let's say, stature notwithstanding, uh, this is where I'm kind of intrigued that, you know, you can, and Hitler was the same thing. I mean, you've got to really bring the masses along with you, and they bought in. There was big buy in for Mussolini and fascism back in the 20s, was there not? Yeah, so Mussolini um, came to power in, he, there was widespread violence between um, uh, the left, when Italy had the largest socialist party in Europe, communism was only founded in Italy in 1921, but uh, conservative elites and the Vatican, they backed up uh, Mussolini because they were afraid of losing, they were afraid of uh, of a kind of left-wing state, and we're mm. The age of the was right after the Russian Revolution. There were revolutions in Central Europe, and so they backed Mussolini, knowing he had perpetrated enormous violence with the squadras all over Italy, thinking they could control him. And so this is the same story that repeated with the German conservatives. It's better known with Hitler, but Mussolini was the first one to to bring this about, and uh, and. And, you know, and Hitler, in fact, was an enormous um, fan of Mussolini, and he tried to replicate Mussolini's march on Rome with his beer hall putsch, but in his case, it failed. Hmm. But you're saying the right-wing establishment uh, sort of seconded these people or supported them because uh, they thought they were the lesser of the evils or could at least be controlled. And uh, once you let the tiger loose, uh, or, you know, the genie's out of the bottle, whatever the metaphor you want to use. So this was the way uh, Mussolini came to power. But uh, it was during the war, really. I mean, uh, it didn't fare well. I don't know that there were, I mean, in 1936, uh, Italy invaded Ethiopia. Ethiopia had but one airplane, but I mean, so that was a fait accompli, and Libya wasn't too too much better off. Uh, but as far as conquering and uh, other things like that, Mussolini was really kind of a lightweight relative to Hitler, wasn't he? 
If we compare him to Hitler, he didn't do as much damage, but he was committing genocide and Hitler was watching in Libya in the early 30s. And um, he also used, uh, the first appeasement was not Munich, but um, the League of Nations deciding that that Mussolini could invade Ethiopia. And the way he uh, won that war in only nine months was uh, over 200 tons of poison gas. Um, so he was a pioneer in autocracy. He was a pioneer in violence. And it's just that his, his reign is not as... Um, It's not as known, all of the things he did. He also was the first right-wing leader to have um, backing of the U.S., and we we know the U.S. went on to have a whole whole chapter in um, propping up uh, right-wing authoritarian governments and juntas in the Cold War. But after Mussolini declared dictatorship, he was a huge star in America and among all the little Italys all over the world. But what's now J.P. Morgan... I gave him a hundred million dollar loan soon after he was cracking down after he declared dictatorship. And so that was a partnership between the Americans and this right wing authoritarian. And again, it was he was the defeater of communism. He was the defeater of the left. And so this was the basis of his um, fame and his appeal uh, throughout a lot of the Western world. With Ruth Ben Gatt professor of history and Italian studies at New York University. So uh, where did it start to go south for Mussolini then? It's very interesting in the era we have now where we see uh, Putin, um, who I believe invaded Ukraine because he realized he was at his peak and had intimations of his decline. And that's when uh, dictators or authoritarians start be doing things in a reckless manner and they get grandiose and they want to preserve their place in history. And this was what Mussolini did. He, uh, he allied with Hitler, you know, in 1936. But when Hitler uh, started World War II, Mussolini knew that Italy wasn't ready. And so he had this kind of neutrality. He bargained with Hitler for neutrality until June 9, uh, 1940. But it, Italy went in completely under, underprepared because the, the country had been at war since Ethiopia, and uh, there wasn't adequate um, training for troops, there wasn't adequate you know, um, uh, war, war material or machines, the equipment was outdated. So they started the war in a, in a bad, on a bad footing. And so by 1942, um, they were being widely bombed, and that was when the population started to rebel. And, and basically, as he, as he uh, then had a multi-front war, which he couldn't sustain, um, and then the Allies invaded Sicily, this was the prompt for what we're talking about on July 25th, the Allies invaded Sicily and started working their way up the peninsula, and, um, and so it's a very interesting case of um, his own elites decided to boot him out. And so it was a very dramatic meeting of his own Grand grand Council, the fascist Grand Council, the night of July 25th. And 19 to 7, including his son-in-law, Galeazzo Ciano, voted to remove him. And what's very interesting is some of these people, uh, they were not against fascism. They removed him because they thought he was incompetent and it was a way of saving fascism. Interesting. Uh, And... Yet uh, Hitler, too, uh, was disenchanted with Mussolini's forays into the Balkans and had to sort of uh, 
replace him, I guess, or uh, shore his uh, troops up. I know when he invaded Albania, he sort of, you know, again, uh, got his rear kicked, and uh, the Greeks also uh, turned out to be formidable foes. They like to uh, talk about that uh, these days incessantly. But nonetheless, so uh, he lost the uh, support of the Grand Council and the King, Victor Emmanuel II. Uh, so did he go quietly? Did he understand that the jig was up for him specifically, uh, that he could no longer sustain any kind of uh, leadership role or power? I'm glad you asked that because one of the things that uh, happens with dictators in what I call late-stage autocracy is that they they start to believe their own propaganda if they've been empowered for too long. And this is when they make reckless decisions. They don't consult before major, you know, invasions. We see this with Putin. And in Mussolini's case, he never thought it was possible that he would be voted out. So he... He came to work the next morning as though nothing had happened. <laughs> and then he was summoned to the king, and the king was the one who had brought him in in 1922, and the king was the one who told him he was relieved and had an ambulance waiting for him, which was actually his arrest vehicle. Mm. And he was, taken to a, he was taken to Ponza, which was uh, an island, but it's one of his um, places he kept his own dissidents. And then he was taken to a mountaintop refuge, and Hitler rescued him. Um, and that starts another chapter. But the very interesting psychological thing is that Mussolini was completely unprepared for this and didn't want to believe that his army was doing so badly, was blaming everyone else. It's a kind of syndrome of autocrats when they've had too much power for too long, and they make these fatal errors, and that's why so many of them end up forced into exile. Um, Putin could well, uh, you know, be in trouble later on. His war hasn't gone very well. This is kind of what they do. That's very interesting that you've connected a lot of dots historically. Final question. I'm curious then, uh, if Mussolini falls from power on this date in 1943, uh, it wasn't very long thereafter, I guess. Uh, maybe it was a year out or whatever. You tell me uh, where he ended up on the yard arm there. Partisans hung him. Uh, how did that come to be? So Hitler rescued him uh, because he still needed him in the war. And then Italy had a very tragic situation of civil war where um, he put Hitler put Mussolini essentially as the head of a German puppet state called the Republic of Salo in the north. Hmm. So you had, you had Italians had to decide whether they were going to join the armed resistance. And unlike in Germany, Italy had a very strong armed resistance of Italians a lot of men deserted from the army and went to become partisans. It was very, you know, very tumultuous time. Uh, there was also an Italian SS in the puppet state. Um, this is when Italy was deporting people, participating in the Holocaust. And in the south, you had the Allies getting going up the peninsula. So it was a big mess. And that's how Italy lived for almost two years. And then uh, when the Allies were 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 victorious, um, partisans captured Mussolini. And it's very important when you've had a ruler for over 20 years, um, the public often wants to see proof that the leader is dead. So the Allies, they took him uh, and they and he was, um, you know, suspended from a gas station and along with his mistress and some other leaders. And so people saw the body. It was very gruesome. 
Hmm. But it was a cathartic for people to see that this man who said he was infallible, immortal, you know, acclaimed by the Vatican, by so many world leaders, was actually mortal after all. Thus endeth the lesson. Benito Mussolini falls from power on this date, 1943, as we romp down History Boulevard with none better than Ruth Ben-Gatt, professor of history and Italian studies at New York University, author of the book Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present as well as Lucid, her Substack newsletter about democracy and autocracy. I think it's a recommended read for anyone interested in how the world is shaped by these types of individuals, and uh, for better, for worse. I appreciate your time this afternoon very much. I'm sure we'll talk down the road. Let me ask uh, if, you know, you remember the Suez crisis from 1956 or historically speaking, because there was great discontentment uh, in the free world at the time. It was... A significant development when uh, Gamal Nasser, who was in charge, the big cat in Egypt, decided to nationalize this thing. It was previously owned for 87 years by the British and the French. And the significance of the canal, we can only uh, give you a, a recent, for example, uh, example. This was where that boat, remember the container ship that was sort of uh, straddling the, the canal and tied everything up, bollocked up traffic and the supply chain uh, for a long, long time. However, uh, on this date in history, we always like to take a bull of, uh, romp down that boulevard. We find out about the nationalization of the Suez with Dr. Sal Mercogliano, who's a maritime historian, former merchant mariner, and he's been on this program in the past. Dr. Sal, good to have you back with us on The Oakley Show. Good afternoon. Well, thanks for having me back, John. I appreciate it. Let's start with uh, the significance of the canal and how it came to be initially, and uh, then we'll move on to the crisis of 56. Sure. So obviously, I mean, the canal is the world's greatest shortcut. It gets you between Europe and Asia without having to sail all the way around Africa. And the significance of it is amazing. You're talking about reducing the time and distance of trade, particularly from Europe to India and the Far East. And so when the British and the French undertook the building of the canal, they started in the late 1850s, but it opened up in 1869. And it's had a huge ramification. We've seen that, you know, as you mentioned, with Ever Given last year in the Suez, it bottled up 12% of the world's trade. So the magnitude of the accomplishment really makes the movement of goods literally seamless. Then it opened in 1869. Well, obviously at the time, they didn't have like heavy equipment or anything. Uh, how was it dug? All manual labor? It was done largely by manual labor. You know, the uh, Suez Canal is uh, affectionately known by the mariners who sail through it as the ditch because there's no locks. It's just literally moving sand out of the way. However, it didn't, you know, wasn't built without the loss of life. Uh, collapses of the sand and, and cave-ins were very common at the time. It required a substantial amount of investment before any money was seen in return for it. But, you know, over time, you're talking about maybe about 3,000 people lost their lives in the building of this canal. Wow. 3,000. Wow. And uh, so the French were the engineers behind it. Uh, who owned it specifically for uh, the longest time? I mean, it's on Egyptian soil, if you will, or an Egyptian uh, part of that uh, territory. Yeah, it was a British and French. Uh, uh, one of the few times we see the British and French really cooperating during this period of time was this. So it was a joint company venture between them, uh, and the British brought a lot of the expertise, the French brought the engineering to it, but in particular, it was a huge boon for the British. Uh, the British Empire was the one that stretched across the world. Sun never set on the British Empire. 
So they saw the magnitude of this. It was going to link together their trade, but most importantly of all, it put their Navy and their Merchant Marine in a position where it could really dominate the world's trade. So both the British and the French had reasons to undertake this, and they saw profitability. The tolls and the money derived from ships going through the canal was going to basically fund this canal for the future and bring the shareholders of the company quite a bit of profits. Wow, so a real linchpin to uh, the empire and uh, servicing the colonies and extracting the wealth and bringing it back home to uh, Mother England. Again, with the Suez Canal being built, uh, it was back in 1869 for 87 years, remained largely under British and French control, and then everything changed. In 56, Gamal Nasser, who was in charge in Egypt, decided to nationalize it. This precipitated a crisis. What went on there? Sure. So, I mean, you're talking about post-World War II and, and the thing that's sweeping across Africa and Asia at this time is decolonization. It's the independence of nations and states. We saw it with India in 1947, leaving the British Empire. And Egypt had always had a very tenuous relationship with the British and the French regarding the Suez Canal. Even though it was on Egyptian territory, they always felt they weren't getting the just desserts from that ownership. Plus, it brought a lot of problems for Egypt, both World War I and World War II, the uh, Central Powers, and then later on the Axis, the, the, the Africa Corps, all aimed to cut the Suez Canal. But in 1856, Nasser saw an opportunity. He wanted to make Egypt an independent state, and more importantly, he needed money to generate, to, to get wealth. And Egypt is one of those few Middle East states not sitting on oil, so the best source of revenue for them besides tours of the Great Pyramid was going to be the uh, Suez Canal. In uh, particularly, one of the things he wanted to do was build a dam, uh, what was called the Aswan Dam, to create power for the nation of Egypt. The Nile River is a very unique uh, river. Nile stands for life in Egyptian. And he had gotten some backing for the... Can, uh, the dam, but he didn't like a lot of the restrictions that were associated with it. And so he decided to build this dam. He needed to create revenue, and the best source of revenue he had was the Suez Canal. So he nationalized it. And what does that mean? What were the implications? He basically boots the British and French out. And, you know, you're no longer in command. And what he basically did was take over the revenue for it. The money would now go into the Egyptian uh, coffers not into British and French. Uh, he put his own uh, pilots on the vessels and announced that Egypt would control the canal. Now, he made it very clear at the time when he nationalized it that he wasn't going to interrupt service. He needed ships going through the canal. But again, what the British didn't like was this idea that they were going to lose potentially control over a vital waterway. At the same time, the U.S. had control of the Panama Canal, and so the Egyptians and the French realized that this was going to be a problem. And so they begin to work with the Israelis on a plan to take the canal back. This is all taking place, too, in the backdrop of the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union. Yeah, it becomes a matter of international security, I guess. And uh, so there was a was there a military threat here or a standoff of any kind? Well, the, the fear that always existed was that the Egyptians were going to limit who could go through the canal. And in truth, the Egyptians always were very clear on this, that they weren't going to restrict anybody. They just 
wanted to create a revenue source for them. And so they wanted to take it over. The other fear was that if you're going against the British and French, which are allied with the United States, the obvious nation you would go to for support is the Soviet Union. And so there was fears in the backdrop of the Cold War that Egypt would be leaning more toward the side of the Soviet Union, which had been developing over the uh, creation of the independent state of Israel. A lot of the Arab states were getting support now from the Soviet Union. Well, yeah, and uh, Israel played a role in, I guess, the uh, heightened uh, tensions over the canal. As a matter of fact, after the Six-Day War, uh, it was in 67, uh, the canal had been shut down for like eight years, wasn't it? It was. As a matter of fact, it's actually going to be shut down during this crisis when the Egyptians uh, find the British and French striking at them. The Israelis, in conjunction, will come out of the Sinai, and for a brief period of time, the canal is going to be shut in 56. But again, in the Six-Day War, it's shut for eight years, and that has significant impacts on global trade when it's shut down. Both these, both events, the uh, nationalization of the Suez Canal in 56 and the shutdown starting in 67, both impact uh, worldwide shipping. Eight years, wow. Because uh, we know that uh, the Ever Given, I mean, it was a matter of what, uh, three weeks, I guess, or four weeks? Anyway, uh, it <laughs> led to all kinds of disruptions. Six days, just, just, just six days, but that's the level of disruption it had. Yeah, and eight years, I'm guessing. Uh, I don't know what happened as a consequence, but uh, then it was Sadat who came in, and he reopened the thing. But back on this date in 1956, Nasser, who was in charge in Egypt, nationalized the Suez Canal and uh, created all kinds of havoc in the free world. That's a great explanation, Dr. Sal. I appreciate you joining us yet again. Uh, anything that surfaces with the Suez Canal, we know that you're the go-to guy, maritime historian, former merchant mariner, Dr. Sal Mercogliano. Back in 1996, while the Olympics were in full throttle in Atlanta, Georgia, late at night, a bomb went off during a rock concert, and uh, it killed two people and injured more than 100 others. And uh, implicated in the bombing at the time was a security guard named Richard Jewell. Now, you may recall the story. If you don't, Clint Eastwood in 2019 made a movie of this because there's a whole backstory or a subtext to it, and a lot of it deals with the media and their rush to judgment and how it can sully a person's reputation, destroy their name, their reputation as a, as, as a result. Now, Ken Alexander is a U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Georgia at the time of the 1996 Olympic bombing, spent hundreds of hours in meetings with the FBI about the bombing, and he wrote and hand-delivered Richard Jewell's clearance letter. We know in the end he was exonerated. But Ken Alexander is also author of the definitive book on the matter, The Suspect, an Olympic bombing, the FBI, the media, and Richard Jewell, the man caught in the middle. Served as a basis for the Eastwood film that I just cited as well. Kent Alexander has joined us on the line. Would you say as much as anything, this story of Richard Jewell? I mean, uh, I'll sort of jump ahead and say it was really about a rush to judgment on the part of the media. Yeah, rush judgment on the part of the media, law enforcement, and actually uh, the public, too. So how did that come to pass? I mean, set the table for us in 1996. I gave the salient point that there was a bomb that went off late at night. Richard Jewell, a security guard in the area, he saw a knapsack that was suspicious, and this thing unraveled uh, in real time just, uh, you know, days later. So how'd that happen? 
Sure. Well, the bomb goes off. Uh, the FBI has got a forward command post set up right next to where the bombing site was, and calls start coming in almost immediately with different names. And there were a lot of names other than Richard Jewell, but a couple of people called in and said, you might want to take a look at this guy. And there was just a lot of just unusual circumstantial things that had gone on. But uh, probably at the heart of it is the FBI's behavioral science unit, which went by another name at the time, sort of the Silence of the Lambs group, came up with a profile, which essentially said it looked like Richard Jewell was the bomber. So from there on, it just uh, kept barreling towards Richard Jewell. So what piqued your interest in getting involved? Uh, well, I was, I was the U.S. attorney at the time, so I headed out as the lead federal prosecutor down here. We'd worked for a couple of years with the FBI and other law enforcement getting ready for what they call critical incident. If something really awful happens, and this was a critical incident. So I was uh, you know, involved you know, from the start with the Bureau because ultimately you know, my office and I were the ones who would prosecute whoever the bomber was. And so as the, the story sort of uh, evolved or uh, took on a life of its own, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the newspaper, the biggie in Atlanta, uh, sort mm-hmm. of got ahead of themselves over their skis, as it were. Uh, this was also depicted in the Clint Eastwood movie. Uh, how did that come to pass? I mean, what were the pressures on the media at the time, and why would they have gone off half-cocked? Well, there was a huge pressure on the media because it was the Olympics. We had over 10,000 journalists in town, and everybody wanted the story. They wanted to find out who the bomber was. With the AJC, it's, you know, you can fault them in some ways, but the fact is that the, they had a reporter who was really enterprising named Kathy Scruggs, who Olivia Wilde played in the movie, and she managed to you know, find a source and a leak and got Richard Jewell's name. And uh, what, when they ran with it, though I was pretty upset at the time, uh, the fact was when they ran the story that he was the primary suspect, he was. Yeah, the movie depicted, as I understand it anyway, that uh, perhaps she had a dalliance with an FBI agent in order to glean that information. Uh, uh, yeah, I think uh, with, I, Clint East was amazing. Warner Brothers did a great job, but I don't think there was any dalliance. That was uh, at that time. They, there was there's a deadline, and uh, I, yeah, there may have been some motivations on why why the agent who leaked it did, but uh, I don't think anything happened that night. There was just. Uh, there's a rush to get the story to the paper. And so for the FBI uh, and their field office right there, I mean, why would they give mm-hmm. credence to the idea, the narrative that Richard Jewell would have been the guy? Uh, there were a bunch of little things that added up aside from the profile I talked about. He just said some quirky stuff like he, uh, he, he before the, before the Olympics, the park where it went off was being built and there was a sound tower, a light tower, not the one where the bomb went off. But he went up to the guy building and said, hey, would this withstand a blast? What's it rated? And you, you rate things for you know, how strong they would be against the blast. It was just kind of a weird thing to say. He had lost a couple of law enforcement jobs. He, uh, uh, he asked a bunch of people if, before the bombing, like, take a picture of me. I'm about to be famous. And then uh, the night of the bombing, he's guarding the tower. The bomb went off. And it was the only night in nine days of the Olympics that had happened so far where he left his post. And he left it not long before the bombing. And it just, again, it was no one thing, but a lot of little things seemed to add up. And uh, it was all circumstantial and it was all wrong. Evidently, uh, yeah, and easily enough to see in hindsight at the time, though, uh, there was, 
I don't know, uh, maybe a moral panic of sorts and wanting to have somebody, a name affixed to this uh, horrific uh, ordeal during the 1996 Atlanta Olympics, a bombing that went off uh, in the wee hours, the early hours, and uh, it killed two people, injured over 100 more. Kent Alexander knows about this intimately. He's written about it in his book, The Suspect, an Olympic bombing, the FBI, the media, and Richard Jewell, the man caught in the middle. What about the 911 call that came in to warn that there was a bomb about to go off? Uh, could that not have sort of uh, exculpated Richard Jewell, or how close was that to, you know, being associated with his voice? Yeah, yeah well, half the story is really, in a way, about that call. We write about it in the book. That's uh, Eric Rudolph made the call, the real bomber. Mm-hmm. And it's the thinking was the time uh, among law enforcement that, well, maybe Richard Jewell didn't act alone. Maybe he was in cahoots with somebody else. He had that call made. And then when the bomb went off, Richard actually was standing around the back where the blast did not hit. And so uh, there was, you know, it it became, uh, you know, basically you, uh, you start believing what you think, think the story is, and then you just try to find stuff to fit it. And that's unfortunately what was going on. Yeah. You have a theory and then confirmation bias, I think what it's called. Sure. <laughs> All right. Well, tell me about Eric Rudolph, Eric Robert Rudolph, the real bomber, and uh, how they finally caught up with him. Yeah, well, this is a guy who hated blacks, he hated Jews, he hated gays. I mean, he just had at the federal government, he had a lot of hate. He's, uh, and he had managed to work himself into this frenzy about the Olympics represented everything wrong in life with cultures coming together and all that. So he plans, he plans on this bombing. He planned on doing several more. In fact, he did do three other bombings after the Olympics. Uh, his name didn't even come up in this huge investigation for over a year. And it wasn't until his fourth bombing, which is an abortion clinic in Birmingham, uh, some student saw him emerge from around a building. He was taking off a costume, a wig or something, and followed him. And somebody got his license plate, and that's the first time his name surfaced. And it turns out the FBI was able to, and others were able to connect him to all four of the bombings did, including the Olympics. My understanding is uh, he wanted to change his guilty plea in 2020 uh, because I guess he said uh, the offense is no longer considered a federal crime. What's that about? Uh, he's he's just grasping. Um, yeah, he, I think he's realized that now that he's in Supermax prison, which is in Florence, Colorado, he may have been transferred out now, I don't know, but he's been there for a long time. It is not quite the uh, life he expected. And, uh, you know, I don't think any court's going to be letting him out on any on on anything. Kent, Richard Jewell uh, died in uh, in 2007. He was only 44 years of age. Uh, I'm not sure about the the actual details. Mm -hmm. Do you think the trauma of this whole uh, affair hastened his death? Uh, Absolutely. Everybody, my co-author, Kevin Salwin, and I interviewed, you know, like 180 people and at least half of them knew Richard. And so they, to the person, everybody we talked to said that they did think it hastened his death. He died at 44. The reporter, Kathy Scruggs, died at 42. Same thing. And the FBI agent involved died at 57, which if I weren't 63, I think was old, but (laughs) now I think it's young. Um, But all the, it was almost Shakespearean. This, this event brought a lot of people down. Now, there's, there's actually a lot, Richard, there's a lot of fun stuff in the story, and Richard Jewell is a pretty funny guy, but at the end of the day, yeah, I think his life was cut short. 
cut short, and yet uh, it seems like in the end he's seen as being heroic, and he saved a lot of lives that day, that night. Uh, and there's a memorial that stands at the park in honor of him, does it not? Yeah, uh, uh, there is a memorial at Centennial Park. It was unveiled last fall. They had uh, Billy Payne, who brought the Olympics to Atlanta, and Andy Young uh, speak at it, a GBI agent, uh, who Tom Davis, who was a hero that night, too. And then you know, they threw me in for, for side commentary. But it was a great event. And if people come to Atlanta and they want to see where the bomb was and read about what happened, and remember the victims from the bombing, because a lot of people had shrapnel embedded in them. And there were the two deaths you mentioned. It's a great spot to go and uh, and just think about society then and think about society now and uh, what we need to do about violence. You know, I'm interested to know as well, uh, you wrote and hand-delivered Jewel's clearance letter. Uh, mm-hmm. What did that involve? Uh well, it's technically something called a non-target letter, saying it's not a targeting investigation, but basically it's a clearance letter. And that involved my writing it, my sending it up to uh, Janet Reno, who's the attorney general. She actually ran it by the White House. Bill Clinton was the president. And it just went up the chain of command and also to, uh, to the FBI. And at the end of the day, uh, I just got a note back saying, or a message back saying, yeah, your decision, you can do this. So I... It, it, I just did it. Uh, there were there were a lot of people in my office, including Sally Yates, who later became Deputy Attorney General. Actually, three people I worked with closely, and we'd all just decided at the end of the day, after reading all the FBI reports, we just didn't have the right guy. So uh, the FBI agreed to have the letter go, and I handed it to one of his attorneys. And finally, on the Clint Eastwood film that came out in 2019, you were mm-hmm. instrumental in uh, predicated on the book The Suspect, an Olympic bombing, the FBI, the media, and Richard Jewell, the man caught in the middle. Uh, did it do justice to the memory of Richard Jewell and an accurate portrayal of, uh, of events? Yeah, uh, it did. They, they based the movie on our book and a great Vanity Fair article by Marie Brenner. Uh, and I think they, I think it did do justice to Richard Jewell. His mother really liked the movie. His wife, he got married later on, thought that uh, Paul Walter Hauser, the actor, did an amazing job. In fact, it was eerie how he even had the mannerisms down. So I think it did, definitely did justice by Richard Jewell. You know, Kathy Scruggs had had her you know, sleeping with the FBI agent, which you know, just didn't happen that night from from our research. So that was a glitch. But uh, on balance, I thought it was a great movie and. Uh, Richard Jewell you know, finally got his got his due with uh, Clint Eastwood, which is very cool. <laughs> right. Uh, and that would be, I guess, uh, in some ways, a posthumous compliment. Again, Ken Alexander, U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Georgia at the time of the 1996 Olympics bombing, of course, in that year, spending hundreds of hours in meetings with the FBI about the bombing, and he wrote the book, it's the definitive, a co-author, uh, the suspect, an Olympic bombing, the FBI, the media, and Richard Jewell, the man caught in the middle. Can't really appreciate your explaining it as we took a romp down History Boulevard remembering this fateful night from 1996. Thanks for your time. <laughs> 